section 21 of volume 1e of History of England from the invasion of Julius Caesar to the revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Calvin. History of England from the invasion of Julius Caesar to the revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1e, section 21, chapter 54, part 5. The evidence of Secretary Vane, though exposed to such insurmountable objections, was the real cause of Strafford's unhappy fate, and made the Bill of Attainder pass the Commons with no greater opposition than that of 59 dissenting votes. But there remained two other branches of the legislature, the King and the Lords, whose assent was requisite, and these, if left to their free judgment, it was easily foreseen, would reject the bill without scruple nor deliberation. To overcome this difficulty, the popular leaders employed expedients for which they were beholden partly to their own industry, partly to the indiscretion of their adversaries. Next Sunday, after the bill passed the Commons, the puritanical pulpits resounded with declamations concerning the necessity of executing justice upon great delinquents. The populace took the alarm. About 6,000 men, armed with swords and cudgels, flocked from the city and surrounded the Houses of Parliament. The names of the 59 commoners who had voted against the Bill of Attainer were posted up under the title of Straffordians and Betrayers of their Country. These were exposed to all the insults of the ungovernable multitude. When any of the lords passed, the cry for justice against Strafford resounded in their ears, and such as were suspected of friendship to that obnoxious minister, were sure to meet with menaces, not unaccompanied with symptoms of the most desperate resolutions in the furious populace. Complaints in the House of Commons, being made against these violences, as the most flagrant breach of privilege, the ruling members, by their affected coolness and indifference, showed plainly that the popular tumults were not disagreeable to them. But a new discovery, made about this time, served to throw everything into still greater flame and combustion. Some principal officers, Piercy, German, O'Neill, Goring, Wilmot, Pollard, Ashburnham, partly attached to the court, partly disgusted with part the Parliament, had formed a plan of engaging into the King's service the English army, whom they observed to be displeased at some marks of preference given by the Commons to the Scots. For this purpose, they entered into an association, took an oath of secrecy, and kept a close correspondence with some of the King's servants. The form of a petition to the King and Parliament was concerted, and it was intended to get this petition subscribed by the army. The petitioners there represent the great and unexampled concessions made by the king for the security of public peace and liberty, the endless demands of certain insatiable and turbulent spirits, whom nothing less will content than a total subversion of the ancient constitution. The frequent tumults which these factious malcontents had executed, and which endangered the liberty of parliament. To prevent these mischiefs, the army offered to come up and guard that assembly. So shall the nation as they expressed themselves in the conclusion, not only be vindicated from preceding innovations, but be secured from the future, which are threatened, 
and which are likely to produce more dangerous effects than the former. The draft of this petition being conveyed to the king, he was prevailed on, somewhat imprudently, to countersign it himself as a mark of his approbation. But as several difficulties occurred, the project was laid aside two months before any public discovery was made of it. It was Goering who betrayed the secret to the popular leaders. The alarm may easily be imagined which this intelligence conveyed. Petitions from the military to the civil power are always looked on as disguised, or rather undisguised, commands, and are of a nature widely different from petitions presented by any other rank of men. Pym opened the matter in the House. On the first intimidation of a discovery, Piercy concealed himself, and Germain withdrew beyond sea. This further confirmed the suspicion of a dangerous conspiracy. Goering delivered his evidence before the House. Piercy wrote a letter to his brother, Northumberland, confessing most of the particulars. Both their testimonies agree with regard to the oath of secrecy, and as the circumstance had been denied by Pollard, Aspersion and Wilbur in all the examination, it was regarded as a new proof of some desperate resolutions which had been taken. To convey more quickly the terror and indignation at this plot, the Commons voted that a protestation should be signed by all the members. It was sent up to the Lords and signed by all of them, except Southampton and Robarts. Orders were given by the Commons alone, without other authority, that it should be subscribed by the whole nation. The protestation was in itself very inoffensive, even insignificant, and contained nothing but general declarations that the subscribers would defend their religion and liberties. But it tended to increase the popular panic, and intimated what was more expressly declared in the preamble, that these blessings were now exposed to the utmost peril. Alarms were every day given of new conspiracies. In Lancashire, great multitudes of papers were assembling. Secret meetings were held by them in caves and underground. In Surrey, they had entered a plot to blow up the river with gunpowder in order to drown the city. Provisions of arms were being made beyond the sea. Sometimes France, sometimes Denmark, was forming designs against the kingdom and the populace, who are always terrified with the present and enraged with distant dangers, were still further animated in their demands of justice against the unfortunate Strafford. The king came to the House of Lords, and though he expressed his resolution, for which he offered them any security, never again to employ Strafford in any branch of public business, he professed himself totally dissatisfied with regard to the circumstances of treason, and on that account declared his difficulty in giving his assent to the Bill of Attainder. The Commons took fire, and voted it a breach of privilege for the King to take notice of any bill depending before the Houses. Charles did not perceive that his attachment to Strafford was the chief motive for the bill, and that the greater proofs he gave of anxious concern for this minister, the more inevitable did he render his destruction. About eighty peers had constantly attended Strafford's trial, but such apprehensions were entertained on account of the popular tumult that only forty-five were present when the bill of attainder was brought into the house. Yet of these, nineteen had the courage to vote against it, a certain proof that if the entire freedom had been allowed, the bill had been rejected by a great majority. In carrying up the bill to the laws, St. John, the Solicitor General, advanced two topics well suited to the fury of the times, that though the testimony against Strafford were not clear, 
Yet, in this way of Bill, private satisfaction to each man's conscience was sufficient, even should no evidence at all be produced, and that the Earl had no title to plead law, because he had broken the law. It is true, added he, we give law to hares and deer, for they are beasts of chase, but it was never accounted, either cruel or unfair, to destroy foxes or wolves, wherever they can be found, for they are beasts of prey. After popular violence had prevailed over the lords, the same battery was next applied to force the king's assent. The populace flocked about Whitehall, and accompanied their demand of justice, with the loudest clamours and most open menaces. Rumours of conspiracies against the Parliament were anew spread abroad. Invasions and insurrections talked of, and the whole nation was raised into such a ferment as threatened some great and imminent convulsion. On whichever side the king cast his eyes, he saw no resource nor security. All his servants, consulting their own safety rather than their master's honour, declined interposing with their advice between him and his parliament. The queen, terrified with the appearance of so mighty a danger, and bearing formerly no good will towards Drafford, was in tears, and pressed him to satisfy his people in this demand, which, it was hoped, would finally content them. Jackson alone, whose courage was not inferior to his other virtues, ventured to advise him, if in his conscience he did not approve of the bill, by no means to assent to it. Strafford, hearing of Charles's irresolution and anxiety, took a very extraordinary step. He wrote a letter in which he entreated the king, for the sake of public peace, to put an end to his unfortunate, however innocent, life, and to quiet the tumultuous people by granting them this request for which they were so importunate. In this, added he, my consent will more acquit you to God than all the world can do besides. To a willing man there is no injury. And as, by God's grace, I forgive all the world with a calmness and meekness of infinite contentment to my dislodging soul. So, sir, to you I can resign the life of this world with all imaginable cheerfulness and the just acknowledgement of your exceeding favours. Perhaps Drafford hoped that this unusual instance of generosity would engage the king still more strenuously to protect him. Perhaps he gave his life for lost, and finding himself in the hands of his enemies, and observing that Balfour, the lieutenant of the tower, was devoted to the popular party, he absolutely despaired of ever escaping the multiplied dangers with which he was every way environed. We might ascribe this step to a noble effort of disinterestedness, not unworthy the great mind of Strafford, if the measure which he advised had not been, in the event, so pernicious to his master, as it was immediately fatal to himself. After the most violent anxiety and doubt, Charles at last granted a commission to four noblemen to give the royal assent in his name to the bill, flattering himself, probably, in this extremity of distress, that as neither his will consented to the deed, nor was his hand immediately engaged in it, he was the more free from all the guilt which attained it. These commissioners he empowered, at the same time, to give his assent to the bill which rendered the Parliament perpetual. The Commons, from policy rather than necessity, had embraced the expedient of paying the two armies by borrowing money from the city, and these loans they had repaid afterwards by taxes levied upon the people. The citizens, either themselves or by suggestion, began to start difficulties with regard to a further loan, which was demanded. 
We make no scruple of trusting the Parliament, said they, were we certain that the Parliament were to continue till our repayment. But in the present precarious situation of affairs, what security can be given us for our money? In the pretense of obviating this objection, a bill was suddenly brought into the House, and passed with great unanimity and rapidity, that the Parliament should not be dissolved, prorogued, or adjourned, without their own consent. It was hurried in like manner through the House of Peers, and was instantly carried to the King for his assent. Charles, in the agony of grief, shame, and remorse for Strafford's doom, perceived not that this other bill was of still more fatal consequence to his authority, and rendered the power of his enemies perpetual, as it was already uncontrollable. In comparison of the bill of Otainer, by which he deemed himself an accomplice in his friend's murder, this concession made no figure in his eyes, a circumstance which, if it lessen our idea of his resolution or penetration, serves to prove the integrity of his heart and the goodness of his disposition. It is indeed certain that strong compunction for his consent to Trafford's execution attended to this unfortunate prince during the remainder of his life, and even at his own fatal end, the memory of this guilt, with great sorrow and remorse, recurred upon him. All men were so sensible of the extreme violence which was done to him, that he suffered the less, both in character and interest, from this unhappy measure, and though he abandoned his best friend, yet was he still able to preserve, in some degree, the attachment of all his adherents. Secretary Carlton was sent by the king to inform Strafford of the final resolution which necessity had exhorted from him. The earl seemed surprised, and starting up, exclaimed in the words of scripture, Put not your trust in princes, nor in the sons of men, for in them there is no salvation. He was soon able, however, to collect his courage, and he prepared himself to suffer the fatal sentence. Only three days' interval was allowed him. The king made a new effort on his behalf, and sent by the hands of the young prince a letter addressed to the peers, in which he entreated them to confer with the commons about a mitigation of Strafford's sentence, and begged at least for some delay, was refused in both requests. Strafford, in passing from his apartment to Tower Hill, where the scaffold was erected, stopped under Lord's windows, with whom he had long lived in intimate friendship, and entreated the assistance of his prayers in those awful moments which were approaching. The aged primate dissolved in tears, and having pronounced, with a broken voice, a tender blessing on his departing friends, sunk into the arms of his attendants. Strafford, still superior to his fate, moved on with an elated countenance, and with an air of even greater dignity than what usually attended him. He wanted that consolation which commonly supports those who perish by the stroke of injustice and oppression. He was not buoyed up by glory, nor by the affectionate compassion of the spectators. Yet his mind, erect and undaunted, found resources within itself, and maintained its unbroken resolution amidst the terrors of death, and the triumphant exultations of his misguided enemies. His discourse on the scaffold was full of decency and courage. He feared, he said, that the omen was bad for the intended reformation of the state, that it commenced with the shedding of innocent blood. Having bid a lance adieu to his brother and friends who attended him, and having sent a blessing to his nearer relations who were absent, And now, said he, I have nigh done. One stroke will make my wife a widow, my dear children fatherless, deprive my poor servants of the indulgent master, 
and separate me from my affectionate brother and all my friends. But let God be to you, and them all in all. Going to disrobe and prepare himself for the block, I thank God, said he, that I am no wise afraid of death, nor am daunted with any terrors, but do as cheerfully lay down my head at this moment, as ever I did when going to repose. With one blow was a period put to his life by the executioner. Thus perished, in the forty-ninth year of his age, the Earl of Strafford, one of the most eminent personages that has ever appeared in England. Though his death was loudly demanded as a satisfaction to justice and an atonement for the many violations of the Constitution, it may safely be affirmed that the sentence by which he fell was an enormity greater than the worst of those which his implacable enemies prosecuted with so much cruel industry. The people in their rage had totally mistaken the proper object of their resentment. All the necessities, or more properly speaking, the difficulties by which the king had been induced to use violent expedients for raising supply, were the results of measures previous to Strafford's favour, and if they arose from ill conduct, he at least was entirely innocent. Even those violent expedients themselves, which occasioned the compliment that the constitution was subverted, had been, all of them, conducted, so far as appeared, without his counsel or assistance. And whatever his private advice might be, the salutary maxim he failed not to often and publicly to inculcate in the king's presence, that, if any inevitable necessity ever obliged the sovereign to violate the laws, this license ought to be practised with extreme reserve, and, as soon as possible, a just atonement to be made to the constitution for any injury which it might sustain from such dangerous precedents. The first Parliament, after the Restoration, reversed the Bill of Attainder, and even a few weeks after Strafford's execution, this very Parliament remitted to his children the more severe consequences of his sentence, as if conscious of the violence with which the prosecution had been conducted. In vain did Charles expect, as a return for so many instances of unbounded compliance, that the Parliament would at last show him some indulgences, and would cordially fall into that unanimity with, to which at the expense of his own power and of his friend's life, he so earnestly courted them. All his concessions were poisoned by the suspicion of his want of cordiality, and the supposed attempt to engage the army against him served with many as a confirmation of this jealousy. It was natural for the king to seek some resource, while all the world seemed to desert him or combine against him, and this probably was the utmost of that embryo scheme which was formed with regard to the army. But the popular leaders still insisted that a desperate plot was laid to bring up the forces immediately and offer violence to the Parliament, a design of which Piercy's evidence acquits the King, and which the near neighbourhood of the Scottish army seems to render absolute seems to render absolutely impracticable. By means, however, of these suspicions, was the same implacable spirit still kept alive, and the Commons without giving the king any satisfaction in the settlement of his revenue, proceeded to carry the inroads with great vigour into his now defenceless prerogative. The two ruling passions of this parliament were zeal for liberty and an aversion to the church. And both of these, nothing could appear more exceptional than the court of high commission, whose institution rendered it entirely arbitrary and assigned to it the defence of its ecclesiastical establishment. 
The Star Chamber was also a court which exerted high discretionary powers, and had no precise rule or limit, either with regard to the causes which came under its jurisdiction, or to the decisions which it reformed. A bill unanimously passed the Houses to abolish these two courts, and in them to annihilate the principal and most dangerous articles of the King's prerogative. By the same bill, the jurisdiction of the Council was regulated, and its authority abridged. Charles hesitated before he gave his assent, but finding that he had gone too far to retreat, and that he possessed no resource in case of a rupture, he at last affixed the royal sanction to this excellent bill. But to show the Parliament he was sufficiently apprised of the importance of his grant, he observed to them that the statute altered in great measure the fundamental laws, ecclesiastical and civil, which many of his predecessors had established. By removing the Star Chamber, the King's power of binding the people by his proclamations was indirectly abolished, and that important breach of prerogative, the strong symbol of arbitrary power, and unintelligible in a limited constitution, being at last removed, left the system of government more consistent and uniform. The Star Chamber alone was accustomed to punish infractions of the King's edicts, but as no courts of judica now remained except those in Westminster Hall, which take cognizance only of common and statute law, the King may thenceforth issue proclamations, but no man is bound to obey them. It must, however, be confessed that the experiment here made by the Parliament was not a little rash and adventurous. No government at that time appeared in the world, nor is perhaps to be found in any records of history, which subsisted without the mixture of some arbitrary authority committed to some magistrate, and it might reasonably, beforehand, appear doubtful whether human society could ever reach that state of perfection as to support itself with no other control than the general and rigid maxims of law and equity. But the Parliament justly thought that the King was too eminent a magistrate be trusted with discretionary power, which he might so easily turn to the destruction of liberty. And in the event, it has hitherto been found that, though some sensible inconveniences arise from the maxim of adhering strictly to law, yet the advantages overbalance them, and should render the English grateful to the memory of their ancestors, who, after repeated contests, at last established that noble though dangerous principle. At the request of the Parliament, Charles, instead of the patents during pleasure, gave all the judges patents during their good behaviour, a circumstance of the greatest moment towards securing the independency and barring the entrance of arbitrary power into the ordinary courts of judiciature. The Marshal's Court, which took cognizance of offensive words and was not thought of sufficiently limited by law, was also for that reason abolished. The Stannery Courts, which exercised jurisdiction over the minors, being liable to a like objection, underwent a like fate. The abolition of the Council of the North and the Council of Wales followed from the same principles. The authority of the clerk of the market, who had a general inspection over the weights and measures throughout the kingdom, was transferred to the mayors, sheriffs, and ordinary magistrates. In short, if we take a survey of the transactions of this memorable Parliament during the first period of its operations, we shall find that, excepting Strafford's attainer, which was a complication of cruel iniquity, their merits in other respects so much outweigh their mistakes as to entitle them to praise from all lovers of liberty. Not only were former abuses remedied and grievances redressed, 
great provision for the future was made by law against the return of like complaints. And if the means by which they attained such advantages savour often of artifice, sometimes of violence, it is to be considered that the revolutions of government cannot be effected by the mere force of argument and reasoning, and that factions, being once excited, men can neither so firmly regulate the tempers of others, nor their own, as to ensure themselves against all exorbitances. The Parliament now came to a pause. The King had promised his Scottish subjects that he would this summer pay them a visit, in order to settle their government, and though the English Parliament was very importunate with him, that he should not lay aside that journey, they could not prevail with him so much as delay it. As he much necessarily in his journey have passed through the troops of both nations, the commons seem to have entertained great jealousy on that account, and to have now hurried on, as much as they formerly delayed, the disbanding of the armies. The arrears, therefore, of the Scots were fully paid them, and those of the English in part. The Scots returned home, and the English were separated into their several counties and dismissed. After this, the Parliament adjourned to the 20th of October, and a committee of both houses, a thing unprecedented, was appointed to sit during the recesses, with very ample powers. Pym was elected chairman of the committee of the lower house. Further attempts were made by the Parliament, while it sat, and even by the commons alone, for assuming sovereign and executive powers, and publishing their ordinances, as they called them, instead of laws. The committee too, on their part, was ready to imitate the example. A small committee of both houses was appointed to attend the king into Scotland, in order, as was pretended, to see that the articles of pacification were executed, but really to be spies upon him, and extend still further the ideas of parliamentary authority, as well as eclipse the majesty of the king. The Earl of Bedford, Lord Howard, Sir Philip Stapleton, Sir William Armine, Fiennes, and Hamden were the persons chosen. Endeavours were used, before Charles's departure, to have a protector of the kingdom appointed, with a power to pass laws without having recourse to the king. So little regard was now paid to royal authority, or to the established constitution of the kingdom. Amidst the great variety of affairs which occurred during this busy period, we have almost overlooked the marriage of the Princess Mary with William, Prince of Orange. The king concluded not this alliance without communicating his intentions to the Parliament, who received the proposal with satisfaction. This was the commencement of the connections with the family of Orange, connections which were afterwards attended with the most important consequences, both to the kingdom and to the House of Stuart. End of section 21, chapter 54, part 5. Recording by Matthew Calvin. Canberra, Australia.